Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Jorge Rocha. And we're here with our friend Travis Mushet. He is the host of a podcast called The Haunted Screen, which is about the cinema of Weimar era Germany and some of the cultural, political, economic context for it as well as a teacher of film and media studies at Fordham and Marymount, Manhattan. Welcome to the program, Travis. Thanks. It's good to be here. Oh, fuck. Before we go any further, I wanted to say something because it would feel weird not to. Uh, The great Marxist historian, organizer, activist, thinker, comrade, Mike Davis, he just passed away. um, And I really wanted to say something about it because he was one of the greats. Uh, I just felt so sad when I found out. But um, I think a lot of my sadness was sort of tied up in the idea, the feeling that really we're all alone. Like this generation of millennial communists and anarchists, like nobody is coming to save us. And I kind of knew that already, but like every time a great one from a past generation dies, it just like hammers it home to me a little bit extra, like, ah, shit, ah, shit. Like, we really do have to figure this out ourselves. Uh, what are we going to do? But he he left a really great body of work behind him, and I just wanted to read uh, a message from somebody who, uh, I guess, wrote to him when he was in hospice care to, you know, send their appreciation for his work and how much he had meant to them in his life. And he wrote back and he said, thank you. He said, he said, this is a wonderful note. Thank you so much. I'm actually in fine spirits, consoled by my faith that you and other young comrades will indeed continue the fight with courage and ferocity. It is, as a great Latin American revolutionary once said, the hour of the furnaces when only light should be seen. Un abrazo, Mike. And, you know, part of me was like, why? Like, why do you have faith? We're a fucking mess. But like this guy was literally right about everything else. So, you know, I feel like we have no choice but to believe him. Yeah, Mike Davis is a credible, was an, was an incredible thinker. Um, I still say is because he still is with us just through his writing and through his and through all with in all of us, too. And, you know, he's a, he's a rare good journalist also. Uh, uh, he was also an honorary member of the caucus that Jamie and I are part of in DSA Emerge. Um, so we were grateful that we had a chance to sit down with him two years ago at a teach-in that we recorded. It's on YouTube. Um, everyone should check it out. Just truly one of the few thinkers out there that really exemplifies what that means in the sense of actually thinking truly an original um, I want to read to your point about what you just brought up, Jamie, about faith. Um, this is an interview that he, that he, he, ha- he was in like a few years ago. It's like they asked him, it's like, once the socialist cultural critic Raymond Williams said that to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. Where do you stand on this? And Mike Davis, this is short thing that he said, which I think really exemplifies uh, everything about his like in his, his approach and vision towards the future and also why he had this unwavering 
belief that change was possible, especially among us, the newer generation of the left, which is hope is not a scientific category, nor is it a necessary obligation in polemical writing. On the other hand, intellectual honesty is, and I try to call it as I see it, however wrongheaded my ideas and analyses may be. I manifestly do believe that we have arrived at a final conflict that will decide the survival of a large part of poor humanity over the next half century. Against this future, we must fight like the Red Army in the rubble of Stalingrad. Fight with hope, fight without hope, but fight absolutely. That's so good. Like, even if you don't have hope, still fight. You hear that, folks? You don't have to have hope to join in the fight. You could just be like, you know what? Uh, At least I want to be able to say that I tried. when uh whether we win or lose you know from the fucking veal crate that we're all gonna be living in on peter Thiel's blood farm oh we'll just we'll be like you know what we gave it our best shot and that's uh yeah it's liberated blood farm that's right sure sure that's that's um interesting you chose that quote it's a really good one and it's the same quote that the antifada used um when they did a tweet about, uh, you know, honoring his memory today and uh, posted the episode that we did with him in December of 2020, which was, you know, really one of the high points in my career so far when I got to talk to Mike Davis about what was going on in the world. And he was so nice. He was so generous with his time. You know, he always had time for for communists, for com- for comrades. And uh, it didn't matter if we were just some random little podcast. It didn't matter if we were just some little caucus in the DSA. You know, he uh, he wanted he was trying to help us figure this shit out until the very end. And uh, I really respect him for that. And I think that's why I'm so sad because he wasn't just some random celebrity, you know, like he was our comrade. He was one of us. That's right. Yeah. Back to the topic of today. I think it's very cool that you're doing this show. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous that you got a sponsorship from Fujifilm. Uh, my first my first silly question is, how did you get the sponsorship from Fujifilm? And does Fujifilm want to sponsor us too? I mean, it totally fell in my lap. Um, I would just uh, A friend of mine works at Fujifilm. He's, uh, I think, head of marketing for cinematic lenses or something like that. Um, and I just started talking about this idea for a podcast. I had um, the idea being that every season will be uh, based around a different film movement. So uh, this one is sort of German Expressionism, Weimar film. It could do uh, Italian neorealism or the French New Wave in the future, Soviet montage film, which might be up your guys' alley. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I just was talking about it without any... I, was, I wasn't pitching him on the idea, but um, he just said he thought he could get uh, me money for it. And that's how it happened. It was just thrown at me. Um, I don't know if uh, Fuji will be as willing or able to sponsor a, a podcast with uh, with your name, but um, there, we can always try. I can send you his email address. Well, I appreciate it. You know, you got to keep hope alive. Uh, <laughs> no one told us to uh, do this kind of show. That's just kind of where our particular interests lie. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about the... Uh, the time period and the place that you are covering in this uh, in this show because it's very relevant to my interests on two levels really. Uh, I think the Weimar 
Republic is an important thing to study uh, for anyone who is trying to figure out how fascism happens and how to make fascism not happen feels pretty relevant uh, to today, as well as, you know, my other identity as a gothic American. They really uh, produce some of the spookiest cultural products of all time. It's a very goth era in art and film. So like, what? Let's, let's start with some basics. Like what was the Weimar Republic in case anyone like really doesn't know? And why was it so goth and spooky? Okay. So, um, it really starts with, uh, with world war one, which of course, uh, Germany lost, uh, to, um, France, Great Britain, the United States. Um, they were up against the Soviet Union for a while, but then the Soviet Union, of course, cracked under the pressure of the war or the Russia, the Russian empire cracked under the pressure of the war and became the Soviet Union. Um, when Germany lost, there was a lot of turmoil. The, uh, the uh, Kaiser basically had to flee to the, Nether- to the Netherlands. Um, they started up uh, their uh, a sort of democratic republic in the, on a parliamentary mold um, in the, uh, uh, the city of Weimar was where the constitution was, uh, was put together, hence the name Weimar Republic. Um, so it was, a, it was a liberal democracy uh, that ran from 1919 to 1933 uh, when Hitler was appointed chancellor and then things we all know how that went. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was this time that was really sort of rife with darkness. The, uh, the Germany had just come off of the, the war that they lost one in 25 Germans died in the war, not one in 25 people on the front, but one in 25 period. Oof. Um, there, there was the, uh, um, there was like widespread hunger at home. Oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? Oh, that's just like, like 4% of the entire population died in the war. Yeah. Yeah. 4%. Um, and, uh, the, Obviously, for frontline soldiers, it was much higher. It was, I think, something around one in seven or one in eight people who were in the military, which was essentially every German man of combat age. Um, so everybody knew a bunch of people who who died. Um, people on the the home front, there was a blockade that Britain was doing to keep food stuff out of Germany. So I think there was like around half a million deaths by starvation. Um, then uh, coming out of the war, it's the pretty quickly fell into a a civil war between various political factions struggling for control. You had uh, the communists, the Spartacists, uh, the Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, and right. and their side, um, who were of course murdered. Um, then uh, the the far right Freikorps, um, but the liberal uh, democracy sort of won out, or that uh, it was a coalition of of three sort of centrist parties that uh, sort of got their way there. And um, but the uh, the sort of hellish conditions didn't stop. There was the uh, the Spanish flu pandemic was. Uh, 1919, 1920, which uh, wiped out a bunch of people uh, as it did uh, here in the United States and around the world. Um, And then the hyperinflation in 1923, where prices were going through the roof, things uh, like, uh, uh, for example, a loaf of bread cost about um, one. You know, Travis, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, there is a lot of uh, kind of spooky parallels. Um, But uh, yeah, their hyperinflation was wild. It was uh, like a loaf of bread cost uh, one mark, uh, something like before the war. Um, It was uh, went up to 100 billion marks by 1923. Um, There are photos of people pushing wheelbarrows of currency around because that was the only way you could have enough money to to buy anything. Um, Yeah. So people were it it also created this kind of live for the moment um, nihilistic attitude because literally it didn't make any sense to save your money because your money would be half or worth half as much tomorrow as it was today. So people spent it at, mm-hmm. at nightclubs on, on prostitutes, on drugs, on alcohol, um, and on movies to the, uh, sort of, uh, bring it back to the, 
subject of the podcast. Um, and so, yeah, oh, it's a, yeah. The, the, the kind of live for the moment hedonistic Berlin that we think of when it comes to the Weimar era was really kicked off by this sense of uh, one nihilism of having lived through World War One and the events that followed. And also just the need to spend money quickly kind of pushed people into these uh, uh, sort of various vices. Mm, a material explanation. I like that. Where are our crazy cabaret nightclubs? That's what I want to know. I feel like we're slacking, but I'll, maybe I'll things got to get a little the, worse. I'll send you a link after the, after the show, Jamie. Okay, great. <laughs> so, yeah, shit's fucked up is what you're saying. Um, yeah, I guess we, sh- we, I mean, we could devote a whole episode to uh, what happened with the communists and with the assassination of the leaders, the German communist leaders, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, uh, by the Fry Corps, which was a paramilitary group, as I understand it, who uh, sometimes did mercenary shit on behalf of this uh, nice liberal democracy, but eventually became aligned with the Nazis as that party rose to power. So, uh, yeah, maybe there's a lesson for liberals in there. I don't know. Yeah, there was definitely some uh, some tolerance uh, on behalf of the the SPD. The SPD were the the moderate socialist party. Um, the KPD was the uh, the hardline communist party, um, and it wasn't unusual for the SPD to look the other way when it came to um, brown shirts killing not or killing uh, communists. Um. Oh boy! Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that here. Uh, a question on 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 this. Actually, I'm kind of curious about. Um, and perhaps like if I, if I read a book about the era, I would know like probably have a better understanding. But why is it that it seemed like the paramilitary organizations in Weimar Germany was kind of like unique, like historically, like yes, like far right movements historically do have a lot of paramilitary arms, but in Weimar Germany specifically, it seems like everyone had one, right? So it's like why why. Like, did it not have police? Like, what, 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 why is it that it seemed like all these, like, political parties had their own kind of paramilitary arm? Yeah, even the, uh, the sort of mainstream, like, uh, liberal democratic parties had paramilitaries, which is somewhat unusual. Yeah, it's hard to think of, like, the right. Democrats having an, an army of, uh, of people on the streets <laughs> with guns. Um, but I'm, I'm an army of wine moms. <laughs> Yeah, I I am not completely sure, but if I were to to speculate here, it would be because the period um after the the fall of the the monarchy after the the Kaiser left, there was this period of turmoil of of civil war. Basically, it was a small scale civil mm-hmm. war for control over the country. So various political factions kind of had to arm to uh to stand up uh, for their for their side to try and get their way, and so that's that kind of set a precedent um that followed through the the 1920s and into the 1930s. Man, the vibes must have just been fucked. Like, those are just, like, not good vibes. <laughs> the vibes must have been atrocious. Yeah, but uh, I mean, some good art came out of it, though. That is true. That is very true. So, uh, yeah, who was this F.W. Murnau guy who made the movie Nosferatu, which I should have mentioned? Did I mention it? I don't think so. That we're going to be discussing... Uh, yeah, who was he, and how did he come to make this very creepy film in 1922? Yeah, we're talking about the OG vampire movie. Yeah, so um, it, interestingly, this didn't start off as a uh, as a project from Murnau. Uh, it was actually initiated by this guy uh, named Albin Grau, who was an artist and architect. 
Um, he was also heavy into occult circles um, in, in Germany at the time. Um, he was a member of the Ordo Templi Orientis, like the uh, same uh, organization as, as Aleister Crowley. They ran in the same circles. Right. They'd they'd met each other. Apparently, uh, Grouse shot some footage of uh, of uh, of Crowley at some point when he was on a trip to at some sort of wizards conference in Thuringia or something along those lines. Whoa. Um, so they they uh, ran in these uh, these same circles. Um, uh, Grouse was not a fan of Crowley, probably over some arcane sort of thalema magic right. shit. Um, who knows? Um, but I mean, the, I uh, thought he was like also an asshole aside from everything. He was kind of like just not not a good dude. Yeah, no, I, I, he tended to alienate people. So it could have just been a personal, just like a sort of disputes in any uh, sort of group of people. Um, but right. so uh, this guy Grau did some of the some initial concept art uh, for the uh, for the film, kind of get, to get the design right. Um, he uh, sort of designed. Uh, he had the vision of of the vampire as we know him. Um, in the movie, Count Orlock is uh, is what he's called in the film. Um, and so uh, he had these uh, sort of this this vision of the movie that he wanted to make. He founded a a film company to to make it and other uh, other occult movies. It was called Prana Film, with the uh, Prana being a Sanskrit word. You know, you have all of this Orientalist magic stuff going on in uh, right. in Germany at the time and all, all elsewhere in Europe. Um, and so uh, he had this project that he wanted to make. He had been on the uh, the Serbian front during World War One, where he he says that he had heard all of these folklore about uh, about um, vampires in the region, although it's unclear how much of that is is apocryphal. Um, but he hired a screenwriter, uh, Heinrich Galin, uh, to to write the script. Um, so we're going to get to the anti-Semitic aspects, or the potentially anti-Semitic aspects of Nosferatu later in the conversation, I'm sure. But um, Galin was Jewish, um, so the uh, the script was ri- written by a a Jewish guy. Um, he also wrote the Gollum, um, so he does have some uh, some I guess Jewish credibility there, although. Um, I, that, that job really could have gone to anybody. It's not as though Weimar Germany was especially uh, careful about appropriation. Um, but uh, so the uh, then they needed the director. Uh, the director is uh, was uh, Friedrich, Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. Um, he was uh, he was more or less openly gay at the uh, at the time, which was not super unusual in Berlin of that era because we're talking about sort of Weimar Berlin, which is one of the more liberal. Um, eras uh, when it came to, or progressive eras when it came to uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, you had even either gay clubs that were operating in the open, uh, gay publications that, that were circulating. Uh, there were even early um, experiments in, uh, when it came to gender, uh, uh, gender uh, reassignment surgery uh, was happening at that point. Um, but so, yes, he, he, was, um, he was not, this was not a project that he originated, but he was brought on to, uh, to do it. Um, and I think that some of the um, th- there is some, uh, there are queer readings of, of Nosferatu of the sort of, uh, connection between, um, the vampire and, uh, and Jonathan Hutter, who is the, uh, the guy who comes to his castle to try and sell him some property. Um, but, uh, yeah, that yeah. is, that is, uh, Murnau. There's some straight, there's some versions of the Dracula story where he just like straight up fucks him. <laughs> like he straight up fucks the Jonathan Harker, Hutter, whatever character. Right. Um, but like usually it's more, uh below the surface homoeroticism you know and until we get to this latest version of vampires like i just did an episode of uh vampire castle which is my little vampire series with leslie lee on the new interview with a vampire show which is a lot about like intersectional identity basically like this guy he's queer he's black and he's Mm. a vampire a lot going on but yeah the sexual relationship is much more uh on the surface there. Yeah. Count Dracula, the original by Erasure. 
That's true. So, yeah. So what was the cultural impact of this movie when it came out? Like, was it a box office hit or was it more of a a cult classic, as they say? Um, It it was not a box office hit. Um, It was critically really well received. It helped to establish uh, Murnau's reputation. Um, He would go on to make some other classics. Uh, The Last Laugh is probably his uh, his sort of best known German film master, Nosferatu. Then he came to the United States and made a film called Sunrise, which actually won the uh, the first Academy Award for essentially best picture. They had two best pictures at the first Oscars, but um, so the, the oh, film wow. did make uh, his career, but the, uh, as far as a box office uh, sort of, sort of uh, returns, it was not, um, it was not great. Um, but it was part of this cohort of dark, spooky films that were coming out um, of, uh, of, the, of Berlin during this era, the uh, early Weimar era. Uh, you have films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which came out a couple of years earlier in 1920, um, which is really, um, I mean, it's, it's Tim Burton before Tim Burton in terms of the aesthetics, all of these, these angles and weird uh, costumes and, and things like that. So uh, the, the Gollum is another, another film of this uh, sort of cohort uh, that is uh, sort of heavily stylized. It's, this is the era of German expressionism where the goal is to kind of externalize um, internal torment, essentially. It's uh, the most emo of international film movements. Um, and so it was, uh, Nosferatu was a, a sort of one of the, uh, the keystone uh, projects of, uh, of that era to help to, uh, sort of cement that as the dominant aesthetic for a few years before, um, things sort of shifted towards a more realistic and socially engaged type of cinema. But the, the early twenties was really dominated by these kind of fantastical, dark horror stories. I mean, you say it wasn't socially engaged necessarily, but that doesn't mean that it didn't absorb a lot of the zeitgeist of right. society, right? Like you have, um, you spend a decent amount of episode two of your podcast explaining that there's really no evidence that the filmmaker, F.W. Murnau, or the other people involved in the film uh, were anti-Semites themselves necessarily. And yet... This vampire character, Count Orlock, looks an uncomfortable amount like anti-Semitic caricatures that were circulating at the time in Germany. So I just want to get your thoughts, like how do these kinds of things make it into films without the conscious intention or realization of the people making them? Uh, Is it just that you know, vampire stories themselves were sort of driven by anti-Semitism and Murnau took a look at them and was like, oh yeah, that's spooky. That's cool. I want to make a movie about it um, without really realizing the, the, the larger context or what, what's going on there, do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're totally right. The vampire does look like something out of Der Sturmer. There's the, the big hook nose, the talon fingers, the bald head. It really is kind of a, a gross looking caricature. Um, of the uh, of what you would see in anti-Semitic publications at the time, but um, I think that in, in Weimar Germany, what was considered to be terrifying, what was considered to be horrific, what was considered to be disgusting, was um, in a lot of ways conflated with what was designated to be Jewish. That the anti-Semitism was so strong that these two things kind of intertwined. Um, it's tough to say. I mean, what came first? Um, I, the uh, the vampire does look sort of rat-like. He, in the film, he is very much associated with rats. He arrives in the city on a boat full of, of rats, uh, which again, you have this, uh, this character from the East going into the German city and infesting it, essentially, which it kind of expresses this fear of potentially of, of immigration, of the, of the Germans uh, being overrun by these um, sort of 
unhuman uh, creatures from the from the east. Um, and yeah, Murnau, he does not appear to have been anti-Semitic. There are accounts from uh, one of the actors in the film who was Jewish in his memoirs notes a time when Murnau actually stood up for him when, he, when there was a uh, one of their professors in acting school went off on an anti-Semitic tirade. So um, Murnau seems to have been when it came to the people in his life, um, sort of very or not uh, not anti-Semitic. Um, but it, these things. Yeah, are, and his boyfriend was Jewish too, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Hans Ehrenbaum Degla was the uh, the love of his life, basically, who uh, sadly died in World War One, like uh, like so many others. Um, and he was uh, he was half Jewish, um, so there were a lot of people uh, in his life who were important to him, who were um, who, who were Jewish, um, as well as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the screenwriter. Um, so I mean, I, I think this stuff just is in the air. The things that are uh, we're, when we're talking about horror films, what uh, horror films are going to more than most other genres tap into the things a given society or a given culture sees as being um, terrifying or, or off-putting or, or disgusting in some ways. And uh, and in uh, the Germany of the Weimar era, a lot of that was sort of the the imagery that was uh, conflated with uh, with Ju- with Judaism or with with Jewish people. Those two things were were intimately li- linked. Um, that you would see it in in the cartoons of the era. Um, just the, uh, the, the fiction of the era was, it was, it was in the air. And so I think he was drawing from the culture without maybe thinking too carefully about, um, the, the social or cultural connotations of the imagery that he was playing with. Man, Nosferatu is canceled. (laughs) Yeah. Do better FW Murnau. Yeah. I remember watching the movie, you know, and Jamie had watched it before I started watching it and I with watching it and Jamie's like, you know, it's like the movie was good aside from the fact that like, you know, the vampire was basically like all these tropes, anti-Semitic tropes and we're watching it. It was like, okay, I'm going to go in with like, no, like no expectations. And it was like, Hmm, I thought like, watching it. I watched like, say like the depiction of the real estate agent looking at like this undecipherable, like, like mystic Juice kind crawl. of text, like mystic text. And I'm like, Hmm, no, and like there is thinking, actually Hebrew in the uh, in the the thing oh that you're talking god. about in the document, so that, that is there. Oh my god! Well, I remember thinking like, oh, I mean, like, hmm, are they being anti-Semitic? And then and then remember watching throughout the movie, just thinking, no, 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 it can't be just being anti-Semitic. And then the when I'm done with the movie, I'm like, I think that movie was about the Jews. Like, I think it just like could not, even if like it wasn't intentional subjectively is just like saying something very anti-Semitic. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair reading. It's one that a lot of people have, have, have put forward, um, even down to things like he's uh, like the, the sort of initiating event of the film um, is Orlock buying real estate across the street from Hutter, right? You, you see this kind of uh, the, the property buying, the, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, wealthy uh, other uh, who, who's coming into it to take the land, to take over the, uh, uh, the, the city, um, it's, uh, yeah. Th- there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, no, no, a right. lot of that stuff is absolutely there. No, and also, yeah. like, you, 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 uh, y'all mentioned, like, about, like, people, who, like, foreigners, and it's like, well, if you think about, like, anti-Semitism, the whole, the whole thing in terms of, like, historically, it's like, well, their, their, their bigotry towards Jewish people is like, oh, Jewish, the, uh, the Jews are the highest form of, of foreigners because they're, a people of, of no land. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's definitely true. It's, uh, Nosferatu is going to go death con three, I, I think. Oh boy. It's crazy to think about. Like I identified with a lot of what you were saying about the Jews in Germany. 
on your podcast because they were very assimilated. You know, they really thought of themselves more as as Germans than as Jews. And right. they were like sort of disconnected from the more like backwards religious uh, Jews in Eastern Europe. And I was like, I get it. <laughs> On some level. Uh, but then, oh, guess what? When Hitler came to power, it didn't fucking matter. Didn't matter at all. So, uh, yeah, maybe anti-Semitism is uh, something to keep an eye on. It certainly makes me nervous. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The uh, When uh, the Nazis came to power, there was no uh, distinctions drawn between uh, between the Eastern Jews, the, the more Orthodox, and the, the assimilated Jews. Yeah. It's also, yeah, I was also thinking about this because like, all right, I'm a bad Jew. I haven't studied that much of uh, my people's history, Uh, partly because I've always been just like a shitty little atheist, you know, (laughs) like I don't have that much interest in religion. I have more than I used to, I guess, just like on an intellectual level. I don't know, Jamie, Um, based on the Jewish people I know, that sounds like you fit right in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that that is a type. That is a type. We're certainly all over DSA and uh, <laughs> New York City. But um, where is it going with this? But yeah, it is it is an interesting and weird history. I think uh, partially because it laid the groundwork for like modern day concepts of race, the the way the Jews were treated in Europe, and like I was just thinking about this. Maybe this is going to contradict some other things I said. Um, Cause like my family is mostly from Russia, right? A little bit Poland and you know, the, the borders were different back then. So like what is now Russia and Poland, mostly Russia, but like no one in my family has ever referred to themselves as Russian. Right. And I, I didn't really think about that until recently. I was like, man, it's almost like we're rootless cosmopolitans wandering the earth, getting, uh, getting shit on by everyone but uh yeah just uh something something that i thought about maybe this is old news to most people no one's saying anything and that's okay (laughs) as a non-jew i don't feel equipped to uh to chime in on that well maybe uh maybe i'll get on someone who wants to talk about that in the future i don't know marxism and judaism have some interesting uh Interesting history, I got to say. There's some people who think it's really uh, just like structurally anti-Semitic. Uh, I would, say, Yeah. I would say like there's people who think Marx was an anti-Semite. There's people Wasn't like... was Jewish himself? He was. He was. He had Jewish ancestry. He didn't uh, himself identify that way. But yeah, this is very common. I, I think he was aware uh, of Germany it from at the time. though. Hmm? I think he was aware of it that he was. Yeah, he, he was, uh, I think maybe he wasn't religious. That's what that's uh, that's where I'm going with this. But yeah, there's some people who think uh, they have sort of a vulgar understanding of Marxism. They think it's uh, anti-Semitic because they're like, well, you know, it's against uh, you know finance capital, but actually, it's it, against all capital. And the real anti-Semites are the ones who think that you can separate out this uh, shadowy global finance capital that the Jews famously came to stand in for in Nazi Germany from the, you know, the good kind of capitalism, the healthy, national, productive manufacturing capital. That's fine. Don't ask questions about that. Uh, We're just going to scapegoat these other guys for any issues that you might have with 
your life and your conditions. Um, I, I've heard I've heard anti-Semitism and the, specifically the conspiracy theories that uh, are tied to it described as socialism for idiots. And I think that's pretty good because it's like, hey, you got part of the way there. You're like, hmm, there's this group of people that seems to control everything. Why can't I get ahead? Uh, but then you have the wrong analysis of who that is or why that is. Yeah, so... I- Correct me if I'm wrong, and you know, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention my little shred of of Jewish ancestry in me before someone <laughs> someone gets mad at me that I, I am I am a very small amount Ashkenazi. Um, that my brother. <laughs> uh, that isn't like people who say that like uh, criticism of finance capital that say that that is anti-Semitic. Isn't that claim itself that 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 saying that. Criticizing finance capital as anti-Semitic, that to me sounds anti-Semitic because why are you conflating like a anti-Semitic trope with being Jewish, period? Well, bit. Well, I well, mean, there were it's, it's like, laws like being, back in the day saying that uh, Christians weren't allowed to deal with money, so Jews had right. to do it. So it well, seems like a classic, why are you hitting yourself situation? Well, right, but... Like I think, I think there's also a key difference in terms of like uh, uh, the analyzing of certain situations. It's like me, who's like you know, I, my, I'm mostly Mexican, for instance. And if I were to say something like, "Well, people criticizing uh, people who are like say uh, trying to find like a specific trope," <laughs> like someone who says that, uh, "Oh, like people who should just dance is like an ableist thing," or you know, people should have fun like dancing and saying that's ableist, and it's like, and and I say, well, that's that's racist against Mexicans. And it's like, well, that's weird for me to say that because it's like, why are you conflating like a trope about Latin people who like dance well? It's mm. like that, like that, that's a really weird thing to, thing to say, in my opinion. You know, I did kind of use that to try to get out of trouble uh, recently <laughs> when uh, I had a couple artists who I had brought from Mexico to play a show in Brooklyn. And uh, they... I both got me in trouble because they were trying to burn candles in the venue and apparently that wasn't allowed. And I'm like, oh, what are you going to do? Mexicans love candles. Uh, really? You're really going to tell them they can't do that? <laughs> and the guy was not amused. But you know what? I tried. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, um, back to the back to the movie. Uh, so... You have spoken on your podcast, Travis, about a German cultural critic named Siegfried Krakauer, who believes that what happened with the rise of fascism in Germany was foreshadowed in all of these Weimar-era films, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and, I assume, Nosferatu. Uh, Not much of a stretch to read some Nazi stuff into that. do you think that there is any truth to his analysis or do you have a different viewpoint? Um, I think his analysis is, uh, is overstated, uh, that he kind of picks and chooses films uh, that he thinks will, I think, uh, sort of meet his, his thesis. Um, and there are some that, that sort of do. I mean, basically, generally speaking, is that he sees a film as being a, uh, as a, as a, a mass art form, one that was uh, a, angled at a, a mass audience rather than just uh, like uh, like an elite, um, that it represented the the collective unconscious of the German people um, in, a, in a way because it was uh, designed to appeal to like the whole of everybody. Um, and in these films, he sees 
this uh, this desire to be dominated. Um, and uh, the Cal- Caligari is probably the best um, example of this. I mean, his book is called uh, From Caligari to Hitler. He's trying to draw a straight line there. Um, and in that film, Dr. Caligari um, is a is a hypnotist and he's got this uh, essentially a, a sleepwalking hitman that he uses to carry out his his bidding. Um the uh, the screenwriters for that saw what the the film that they were writing as being a, a critique of uh, of that kind of authority after World War One they saw um, Caligari as standing in for uh, for the military or for the the people in authority who were sort of forcing Germans to to march out to their deaths um, but uh, but Caligari uh, but uh, Krakauer rather he he read the film as uh, in, in kind of a different way as as uh, projecting this uh, this latent desire on the German people. Um, that this is what they wanted, that they wanted a, a strong leader to, to tell them uh, what to do. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is the, uh, the, the general thesis that he's getting at. And then, um, as I said, I think that he picks uh, movies that he, uh, that he thinks is going to uh, sort of most fit his thesis. Um, he was also right. a little bit loose with the, with the facts that he was writing at a time where he couldn't just um, stream whatever movie he wanted to. So sometimes he, his descriptions of movies, he, he gets plot points wrong in ways that uh, are, are convenient for his argument. Um, but, uh, reminds but me of like Hegel a bit, go ahead, sir. Oh, it reminds me of a Hegel a bit. Like when you read like say some of Hegel's books, uh, like he's like reciting a quote from like a book and it's like, you're reading, like, I think, I think it was like, might've been like the intro to the, uh, to like this philosophy of right. And might've been that or, or, uh, the phenomenology, but whichever one, like it was like near the intro and I'm like, re- like, like quoting something and like it happened to have been something that like I have read before and I'm like, wait, that's not how that goes. And it's like, and it's because I think it's just like operating and it, there's like a note that's like, Oh, like residing from memory. And it's like, okay, that might've been, it's like, that mm. probably contributes a lot to like a, uh, you know, muddled discourse historically. Yeah, they didn't have Google. Nope. Yeah. Very different era. I've, they had to rely on just uh, on memory in ways that we don't have to. I mean, it's certainly possible to willfully misrepresent what someone else is saying. Uh, in the internet age, and we certainly see plenty of that, but uh, less of an excuse now <laughs> to do it because it's very easy to check the facts. But a lot of people don't really give a shit about the facts, especially in this uh, this era of uh, of info wars, as they say. And I mean info wars in the general sense, uh, in addition to the uh, specific fucking right-wing conspiracy mouthpiece hopefully dead, Alex hope, Jones. Hopefully dead soon, because now Alex Jones has to pay back almost a billion dollars. So, hope that's over. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I also wanted to ask uh, if you see any parallels as someone who studies Weimar Germany or has studied it a lot with uh, present-day U.S., should we be concerned? I know there's like, on the one hand, there's a lot of liberals out there who are like, oh no, fascism is coming and the way you defeat it is to vote, which I guess is an improvement on like arming the Fry Corps. Only not really, because that like that did at least do something for a little while, right? It did defend liberal democracy from the left challengers, uh, not so much from the right. So this is like an even more impotent version of that because, uh, you know, I think the whole deal of fascism is that voting can't necessarily prevent it, 
because it is, you know, bent on destroying liberal democracy. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's the liberals who like hyperventilate and do not understand why this is happening or how to get rid of it. Uh, but then, you know, I think there are some leftists who might like throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, anyone who's concerned about fascism is a stupid shit lib. And, uh, you know, fuck you if you disagree with us. So, yeah, I know the parallels are not perfect, but like, uh, what's your take on this, Travis? Are there any parallels here or uh, am I just getting upset over nothing? Oh, no. I mean, there, there are definitely parallels. Um, it's uh, obviously not one to one because history doesn't work like that. Um, and one thing that has been sort of really overblown in the rhetoric, I think, is talking about a sort of inflation and comparing our current inflation to the to the Weimar era, um, because the Weimar inflation got under control by 1924, which was almost a decade before Hitler rose to power. So those two things are are not really, really correlated in the way that you see it in in the rhetoric. Um, but uh, but there are uh, there is significant overlap when you t- look at how. Um, sort of Hitler spoke about national humiliation coming out of World War One about the uh, the humiliating terms of uh, of tr- the Treaty of Versailles of the, uh, the the way the country was betrayed by uh, by by Jews and communists the two things were really kind of tied up in one another um, the anti communism and anti semitism mm. um, so uh, which are we are we fucking communists or are we capitalists pick a lane fascists yeah no it's uh, they, they portray them as a portray you guys as both. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so this, this rhetoric of, of humiliation of the country being sort of, uh, I mean, Donald Trump always likes to talk about people who are laughing at us is a thing that he goes back to, which is something um, that you hear, can hear echoes of if you look at uh, the, the Nazi rhetoric from the time. I mean, also just complete um, legislative gridlock is something that the U.S. has in common mm-hmm. with the late Weimar era. Um, things were really right. getting only done by uh, by executive decree at the end of but the, the last few years of the Weimar Republic. There was no effective governing majority. And so to get out of this situation of just Uh-oh. stagnation, um, the uh, there was a push to appoint Hitler as somebody who would just, you know, do, get something done. Um, so gridlock has a way of um, pointing people towards authoritarianism. Right. If uh, if the democratic process appears to be broken and incapable of, uh, of achieving anything, then people will start to look at authoritarian solutions. Um, and you saw that, um, when it came to both the, the left and the right in the, uh, the, toward the end of, uh, the Weimar Republic, late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. And I mean, you, you bring up like, you know, totally that the parallels are not, are not exact, you know, like you said, not how that quite works, but I think about, you know, for instance, the paramilitary aspect. And I think that's quite concerning in the sense that, you know, the right in this country definitely have a variety of paramilitary organizations. I mean, forgetting just like paramilitary organizations, I think exactly as we typically describe them, you know, they also have like the police on their side, very much so. Um, But then also I think about like, I found it up, like I saw this on Twitter like this week um, about this, this gun range in Nebraska that blew my fucking mind. I'm like, what? Like, it just blew my mind that this is a real fucking place. It's called, this is the real name. It's a massive gun range. It's called 88, yes, 88 Tactical. And it's Ugh. extremely popular. And, like, the logo is, like, this massive eagle with, like, the, like the you know, like, the, the German eagle, like, very similar to that. And it's, like, um, it's, like, super popular and, like, uh, 
like it had like a gym. Like I, I look at the one that's in uh, Nebraska it has like five hundred seventy-seven Google reviews. Um, yeah, it's like an elite training organization focused on helping individuals, families, emergency service workers. Really popular with the police in the area. Uh, yeah, and so it's like things like I see something like that. And I'm like, hmm, they're just like really like out in the open in some places. Ooh, not great. Yeah, this is why I like to tell people on our side, a fascist worked out today. Did you? Yeah. I mean, you know, physician heal thyself, but uh we've got we've got gyms. There's uh there's actually a cool community gym at Woodbine Space, which is a radical community center in Ridgewood, right uh, right near where all of us live. So that's cool that they're at least uh trying to train some Antifa super soldiers or, you know, just like keep people healthy, whatever. It has many uses, the gym. No, I saw an actual uh, Nazi skinhead on the, uh, the train yesterday. The first time I've seen somebody um, so, so openly Nazi tattoos, Nazi jewelry, um, just riding the L train. Yeah. And he, to speak to your point, he, he was much more fit than like I am. Oh, <laughs> Well, maybe that is the uh, fucking fitspo that we all need. Yeah, and I mean, I'm looking at this place, and it's like 63,000 square feet. It's pretty big. And it's branded as the Midwest's premier entertainment facility. Oh, my God. It has, like, a gym. It has, like, a, a you can climb on the side of the building because it's so big. Uh, fighting. Uh, gun range. Sounds like, like a, a mega restaurant. church like a bar <laughs> well it's like yeah it's like it has all the elements of it except now it's like fascist right wow they they don't need a church there too what they have seventy-seven thousand customers and members what the fuck that's crazy yeah, wow not, we're fucked yeah this is not reassuring at all <laughs> well antifa super soldiers you know what to do what they have private get- security services what Oh no. <laughs> wow. Well, maybe uh maybe the Socialist Rifle Association is right. Maybe we need to be uh just training for uh you know, for sport and for self defense if that ever comes down to it. Like we have a thing called the Second Amendment in the US and it is bad in many ways, but perhaps also could be good on some level if we uh well no, it's not good. Like, it's not good that our country is awash in fucking guns, obviously. But, uh, you know, being that that is the case, I kind of think that maybe the leftists, all us like a fet people from, you know, coastal elite places. It's important uh, to know for self-defense, right? should, Should like at least get some sense of this thing that is a very big part of American culture in wide swaths of the country. So that, you know, so that we can be uh, good Americans. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, you know, it's a very important for self-defense because you never know what situation you might put your, you might be in. And, you know, I think in general, and this is and very seriously now, I think it's like a born life skill because it, it's like a lot of people, um, you know, I've, u- I've used before, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Texas, um, but I... Uh, a big, a big thing is like you don't know when you use it you think you know but then reality if you're not trained and you're just gonna like you could you could just make a mistake or fuck up or something yeah but i mean hopefully no one ever has to use one 
Yeah, I hope, I fucking hope not. I don't know. I feel like I'd actually be kind of good, a good person to take on that responsibility because uh, I've never once wanted to kill myself in any serious way. That's That's an important thing when you have guns in the house. I do, I am concerned about what happens to the guns when I take lots of drugs. I feel like. Oh, for sure. Maybe there should be like a safe that I do not have the code to for when uh, for when that's at play. Although, like, I don't know. I've never done anything fucked up on like the most fucked up thing I've ever done on drugs is like uh, break into a hot tub where I wasn't supposed to be. What? So. (laughs) Oh, you don't know about this, Jorge? Yeah, maybe tell after we're not recording. You don't know about my past as the jacuzzi journalist? Oh, I think I know that actually. So like, yeah, I don't have that darkness inside of me. I think it's safe to say. Or maybe like take all my clothes off and like try to make people dance with me who aren't really into it. <laughs> that's uh, that's like probably the worst, <laughs> the worst violation. And you laugh now, but when you are on acid too and I am dressed like a spider, it's kind of scary. Or a crab. Or a crab. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, it's one of my later characters. But yeah, you know, I'm just trying to get in the Weimar spirit. This has all been preparation for an episode that I didn't know I was going to do until very recently. Yeah, I think there are several steps between um, hot tub uh, loitering and uh, and gunfire on the streets. But we'll see. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, wow, I feel like we didn't talk about the movie enough. Um Basic question. Do you guys like this movie? Do you think it's good? I, I love this movie. I mean, uh, if, you can, if you can bracket the, uh, the anti-Semitism, which I know is uh, hard uh, for, for people, it, is, uh, it, it does really sort of channel that in a pretty, a pretty direct way. But these, um, as I said, this is not some sort of um, anti-Semitic slander film like, uh, like uh, The Eternal Jew or, or Jude Seuss, the movies that the Nazis would put out in the 1930s, it was made by people who, by all accounts, weren't anti-Semitic, and it's just I think they're drawing from the uh, from the the well of uh, the sort of cultural iconography around them. And I'm sure that when we look back at our horror movies from from now, people are going to find all sorts of g- gross stuff right. in them. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I think this is a this is a classic. I think Max Schreck's performance is a is an all timer um, as a, as Count Orlock. He's still it's I, I think it's still really creepy. What do you think, Jorge? Um, Because I agree with you. I think it is amazing how creepy this film still is 100 years later when there's like horror movies from the 90s that I think are lame. Yeah, I I would say I liked it. Um, I found the storytelling, quite frankly, quite compelling. And I remember watching it and thinking because like half the movie, because it's a silent film, right? It's like half the movie, it's like has like, the the you have to read a good amount, mm-hmm. especially like not not just the subtitles. I'm just mean in the sense of like for those who haven't watched it, the the titles, like title uh, cards, and it's just really well done because like when someone's reading from a book, it shows like the page that people someone reading from, or like a letter that someone receives shows like what what it says and like the parchment and the the cursive, which I found really really interesting, and like it it made me kind of bring to mind of like why 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 don't movies now do something like this i find like it's just uh 
find like move it really it really kind of made me a little bit a little bit sad in a sense of like thinking like how limiting our movies are now it's like we do so much there's so much technology in terms of uh say cgi but it's like that's like replacing really trying to do anything interesting with the medium because like sure i can show you like it makes it easier to invent these new worlds but what are you doing with like movie as like a as like a as like a as a form right because here there's you have Nosferatu a movie that came out a hundred literally a hundred years ago, and yet I find is doing more interesting things than say like a fucking Marvel movie that has mm. like that's way bigger budget, way more technically impressive, and yet way more woke. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, if if you include like the uh, the woke military elements too, um, <laughs> but uh, I I think yeah, I mean it. it 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 felt more alive, if, even though like it came out such a long time ago. I mean, it's, um, I was telling Jamie before we were recording. I did find it a little bit boring at some point uh, near the end, but I mean, it, I'll give it some credit. I mean, the movie science was pretty new. Like it was like there hadn't been that many movies that, but I think it was still quite good. And the music did a good job of you know keeping you engaged in terms of like, and I think a lot of you know also making me sad a lot of music in movies now are not really that interesting they're just like there to be in the background and it's like well what if you like made music that dealt with the you know the tone and the theme and what's fucking happening when you're watching yeah and i think this is one of the first movies that had its own score that went with it right because a lot of times in the silent film era they would show a movie and be like yeah just uh fucking wing it like uh do what you feel but they were like, no, this is the score that goes along with this movie. And it works really well, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, this was an early example of that. Um, and uh, then to your, point, uh, to your point, Jorge, there was a lot of formal experimentation going on here. It's tough to tell sometimes because so much of what like we see in a film like this becomes just like standard tropes because it's such a such a classic um, from a. Uh, uh, from from a storytelling standpoint, uh, I mean things like just the the um, the sort of townspeople who refuse to go up to the castle and sort of give these these warnings about the uh, the evil up there that we see in everything from uh, it's an American werewolf in in London to uh, to any number of sort of vampire films today. Like that was the first first shown here. This is the first time you see a a vampire die because of sunlight um, in the in the novel Dracula. Dracula was just mm-hmm. he he didn't like it. It wasn't as though that he killed him. So. Nosferatu's oh, death is uh, is the the first example of that, at least on at least on film. Um, and then on a formal level, wow. there's stuff like the uh, the where they're riding the carriage through the woods, and you get that uh, sort of negative shot where it's all sort of blaring white um, to kind of uh, convey that we're going into a this supernatural realm. Um, they they speed up the footage um, in a in an interesting way where they right. yeah they change the pace that of the because uh, it was hand crank cameras at the at that point, so they could control right. the speed based on how quickly or how slowly. Um, the, the cameraman uh, turned the uh, turned the crank, and so you see them experimenting with that in this film. And so there is a lot of uh, interesting sort of aesthetic choices going on there. No, and I mean, I think I put, you mentioned like the the sped up portions in the film. It, just, it 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 like I didn't think it would, but I did feel a little bit unsettled by it because like it's unnatural, right? It's like everything's moving much more quickly than it should. And I mean, I don't know if it's supposed to represent like oh. Like no, like uh, uh, Count Olaf is like moving that fast, or it's just like supposed to give the feeling because the, the person perceiving it is just having like this kind of almost derealizing pers- like feeling of like derealization and kind of like really f- 
huge anxiety about what he's witnessing. It's like, oh, like because because leading up to the scene where everything kind of sped up, it's like it's like dawning on the main character that oh, this person that I tried to sell this house to that's across from me, holy shit, might be a vampire. Yeah, no, and this is a this is an expressionist film, and so the the, the goal of that that movement or this uh, the school of artist was to uh, sort of make visual the the sort of internal emotional experiences of uh, of people, and, and so what you're what you're talking about about conveying the sense of maybe Hutter's unease as he sees Count Orlock through these uh, through this different tempo, um, I think is uh, definitely a, a valid reading there that we're getting in his mind and seeing. Uh, how uh, how unsettled he is through the, uh, the the manipulation of the the images there. Yeah, I really like the shots in this movie too. Like, there's some really beautiful shots of the countryside when he's uh, sort of climbing up to the castle, and the sky looks crazy. Yeah, and I I meant to ask you like because there are a lot of scenes where I can't really tell if it's supposed to be day or night. Like, uh, why does how did they make it look like that? Was that on purpose? So like uh, the uh, the version we saw, I think, has like, a good amount of tinting in it where the a, a room will look uh, that the scene will look yellow or there will be like a blue tint to, to the film. Um, and right. that was a way that they would signify that like that it was nighttime. A scene that is tinted blue means that it's mm. it, it's at night because um, they really couldn't like, would shoot. They paint it. Sorry. Like, would they paint the actual frames? Yeah, the, the, the frames w- would be dyed um, in order to sort of carry uh. on, that to have this uh, this tint to them because they really couldn't shoot at night. The cameras weren't good enough to pick up um, the, the images um, so that they would suggest it through through the tinting. Um, the, there was versions that were around for years where, the, where they were untinted, where it was all just black and white. Um, it left people really confused because it looked like Orlock was walking around in the sunshine and then at the end he, he's killed by sunlight. Mm-hmm. So it didn't seem to to make any sense. Um, but the, uh, but yeah, the tinting there was, uh, is a, a factor in how they just communicate to the audience what's, what's going on. So th- there are these kind of languages so of, cool. uh, of silent film that, that you would know if it was the 1920s, but are tougher to, uh, to parse a hundred years later. That, that, oh. That's so interesting. You bring, bring that up because like it, 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 it really, by doing that, it's like a, it's, a, it's definitely like a really strong decision of like, a in terms of philosophy, in terms of film, because it it basically admits the fact that like, oh, well, because film, yes, we're filming in three dimension, but ultimately it's a two dimensional medium. And so by doing so, by like painting or like doing the frame, I mean, of course, like perhaps they weren't thinking about it in that way because they're trying to be creative with like the, you know, the limitations of the time, but why is it that they did this, but a lot of like, Silent film perhaps didn't do this, and it's because I think it it's interesting because like I think about say surely a bit after like the silent films, and then like once they started becoming colored, you started having animated films become big with like Disney and, and all all of this, and it's like well, there is not much of a break if you think about it, given like what you're describing of like how every frame they would kind of like. Yes, they, yes, we filmed it in a certain period of time, but then you're gonna in the post you're gonna start changing it. It make it makes you wonder, like, well, perhaps a lot of those foundational steps in terms of making a move like a animated film may have come from from that like necessity of of, of technique. 
Yeah, that there there was a very sort of I mean frame by frame attitude there uh, that working uh, that they're working with actual celluloids too, which of course they didn't tell till much later. There was a physicality um, to uh, to film. I mean that's part of the reason why so many silent films are lost. Um, there are a number of uh, of Murnau's films that that we just don't have anymore. There's one uh, he's uh, Yanis Koft, which is a uh, a Jekyll and Hyde movie, uh, which is um, that people speculate about whether or not that was a him channeling his own relationship with his sexuality of having to sort of hide him himself um, under um, wow. th- this uh, this different exterior. But uh, but we can't really tell because we don't we don't have the movie like it's uh, it's just it's lost to the ages because celluloid is such a finicky material um, and that it was film was not super respected during its early years. It was seen more as a popular entertainment than an art form. So it's some astronomical number, yeah. like like 85 or 90 percent of silent films are just are just gone. Um, so we have this whole. Uh, sort of wow. body of work um, that we that we can't see. That's so crazy, and a lot of Murnau's films were lost as well, right? Like I, I'm surprised that this one has survived because wasn't there some like legal dispute with Bram Stoker's widow because he basically ripped off the entire plot of Dracula? Absolutely, we are incredibly lucky that that Nosferatu still exists. Um, they because uh, the movie is a pretty direct ripoff, a pretty blatant ripoff of. Dracula. Um, they even uh, they, yeah. they, they thank Bram Stoker in the credits, which maybe you shouldn't do if you're going to r- take rip off <laughs> his IP. Um, but they, uh, but yes, yeah, Stoker's uh, widow, Florence Stoker, was was infuriated you, you by this. You know, they felt bad. They felt bad. That's what happened. They they kind of felt bad that they were doing that. So they're like, oh no, I don't want to do him dirty though. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, sometimes it's like they they rename the Harker character from the novel Hutter. It seems like just put a little more effort into this guy's. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so she, there, there were lawsuits. Um, she sought to have like literally every copy of the film destroyed. Um, she got into a battle with some film society in London where they just wanted to sort of keep it and preserve it for like artistic reasons for like kind of have a record of it, but, um, she wouldn't relent. But fortunately, I mean, the film, um, was popular enough that it got shipped, um, to countries that were out of her reach. And so, um, we, we do have a, a copy that, that, that does survive. Um, that's an interesting thing about silent film too, is how um, international it was. Um, Cause once sound film comes in, then the language barrier becomes significant. Um, if you're looking at a silent film, then you can just swap in the title cards, right. With the, with whatever the local language is and it all, it all still tracks, it all still works. So a lot of uh, there were, audiences were, were much more attuned and accustomed to watching films from other countries um, back then than they were in the 1920s than say in the in the 1930s where the the language barrier starts to starts to matter. Ooh. Yeah. Lost medium is always like so fascinating to me because like especially given like film like think about like antiquity was like you know a lot of people don't know this but like say Aristotle like Aristotle who was like the most important thinker of like over a thousand years right we l- have lost say like people don't know that he wrote like plato has like his like dialogues like he was like the socratic dialogues but aristotle also had like a his own set of these and they're just lost to history it's like insane it's like things like that that's like or like you know even contemporary sense like doctor who who's like who's like was like it's like the the most popular bbc show ever and like yet most of the early stuff is gone forever yeah, no, no, it's wild. I mean, the early days of radio and TV too. Stuff was just sort of put out into the air, like shot live or recorded live, and put on the airwaves and and not recorded. There are all of these 
I mean, who knows right. what, what we're missing, what sort of relics of, uh, of the past or interesting work. I mean, stuff that survived that could have been when it comes to film, I don't know, very influential. Like who knows if, if Murnau's best work is just, we don't have access to it. No. And I think, I think about this a lot with like, say like some of the music that I'm into, like, uh, like hip hop or like electronic music where the early, you know, the early stuff is like, well, that's not really recorded because that gets like organically coming from like, uh, you know, here, like New York, uh, hip hop. We even know like the exact apartment where like it started, but we, we're not going to know like every single like people doing these innovations in terms of like the, the medium or like with like electronic music, you know, DJs have sets, right? And people remember specific sets of it being like really good. But now like I think about say things like Boiler Room that is like, is like I think is like a public service truly because it's like a it's like a, a YouTube channel that records like all these DJ sets over the course of a over past over decade of like things that normally if you don't record them they're just like like you said they're just like oh all right that was it right and it's like well maybe it should be recorded and I think it's it kind of it kind of like makes you wonder like you know of like oh like how much of like what we think about in terms of is important in the history is just happens to be the stuff that's recorded and like written down which then you know regarding this show is like well why are certain things being recorded and i wonder if it has to do with like who had the means and the and the uh the wealth and capability to actually be able to record things down as opposed to you know i think about like say mm -hmm. like like uh slave chefs a lot of like Le, what's quote American food is like really just like the uh, a lot of like slaves in the United States made it like a good example is like macaroni and cheese that was made by a slave under I think Martha Washington like Martha Washington yeah. had like a hundred plus like recipes that's like really Martha you did that <laughs> no I mean like the history yeah, that dude. we have are, is the history of the the people with means, right? The people with power because they were like their history is what, I mean, this is almost a cliche that the history is written right. by the victors and the victors are people with, uh, with resources. And so the, that's what we, that's what we know. The, uh, wow. stories of, uh, of Kings and, um, business executives and so right. forth. And, and it fits well, to what you were saying about like a uh, film being like viewed as like a, like, Oh, it's like a popular medium. It's like only like, you know, Oh, boring, ordinary people like, or like, you know, low lives are like into this. What, we're not going to, why should we care about this? Yeah. yeah no, it, it was Luckily, a working class entertainment from the beginning. Hell yeah. Luckily the, uh, the bar to entry for having an archive has definitely been lowered a lot yep. in recent years by technology. Um, although we need to figure out some fucking hosting. So our old episodes will pop up on Spotify but that seems like a pretty minor problem compared to uh, what we're talking about here. Well, let me tell you, Jamie, that, you know, just because it's on the Internet, that should not be something we should be like not thinking about because software rots like but. Uh, because of like everything gets changed over time. All these new updates, like if nothing can, you know, talk, quote unquote, like speak the language, quote unquote, of like old forms of technology, then like how can you access it? And there's that, but then also like things like VHS tapes, right? That's like something that's like within our lifetime. Floppy disks. Yeah. Some of that is like starting to like, you know, decay. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking of Maddie, who just interrupted me, he has a question that uh, 
I don't know. It seemed kind of dumb when I first heard it, but might actually be like, I realized I don't actually know the answer. So maybe it's not. Um, <laughs> he want, now he's looking at me very intently. He was like, why di couldn't they do a soundtrack in these films at first? Like, what, didn't they have the technology to record sound? Why'd they have to be silent? And I was like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I, you know. I mean, they could have theoretically recorded them them separately, right? That, that they had they had phonographs that, that <laughs> they had phonographs. They had means for recording sound, um, but it was just uh, so theoretically they could have just put a record down and and played it. Um, but I I, I think I, I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I know that there were had to be innovations where the sort of the, the film and sound were put on kind of one strip, like the, the sound being, I think, on the on the celluloid in a way that they so that they, they were queued up perfectly um, in the way that you a need to for dialogue. I mean, this is why soundtracks were, were okay because they could be sort of approximate. Whereas dialogue, you need, you need precision. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I can't speak with a hundred percent authority on the, uh, on this particular question, but, um, but, uh, there were, it was the 1927 was the, the first, um, film with, uh, with spoken dialogue, uh, the, uh, the jazz singer, which, um, <laughs> involves a dude performing in blackface, of course, cause this is, a Oh my God. American history. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, uh, it's, that was the point where you start to see sound. Um, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, it's really interesting. The early years of sound Please. film, uh, like, uh, starting in the, the late 1920s and 1930s, um, the cinematography gets a, a whole lot worse, um, for, for a few years, um, because the, uh, really? uh, Murnau uh, was known for what a critic called the, the unchained camera. There are lots of camera movements in his work, lots of interesting, mm. um, just dynamic, uh, sort of shots and movement. Um, but with the, the early sound cameras, um, they were not mobile in that way. They could not uh, sort of move in the same way that the, the, uh, the silent cameras could, they had to be put in these sort of, they were so loud. They had to be put in what they called ice boxes, um, so that they would not get any of the wow. set, like, a uh, sound. It was just a, a, a the technology w wasn't there to, um, get the same kind of dynamic cinematography. So it was years uh, before you get um, anything as visually interesting as some of the stuff that was happening in the 1920s. And you could put now get a camera that like does that way better and like records that way better and they fit in your pocket, which is insane. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because like in terms of like this cinematography getting worse, I mean like structurally short, that makes sense. But then also it, it, it does kind of, make you question as to why if cinematography gets worse got worse for like momentarily right but and then and then it kind of went back to kind of being better it, it does make me wonder then why is it like say you know now like again i feel like the past 20 years have really been this kind of like yeah there's been some good moments here and there but what what it it, it makes me kind of you know worry in terms of like well like because like all the move, a lot of movies just look the same. So it's like it, it how you know this is kind of like a very bro very like open question. But it's like how can we like just foster as a society ways for for like new creative and open ended uh, you know approaches to film, you know art generally, but just approaches to film that like say. One could say, well, Weimar Germany, nobody, nobody, there were no rules, nobody, everyone was just kind of figuring it out. But uh, also, there's an element of like, well, like people also had to have the means to just, you know, try things out. How can we get back to a point where people were just like trying shit, throwing shit at the wall? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, we need people to start buying tickets to things other than Marvel movies. I guess it's the uh, the, the finance of the uh, the economics of the industry is so focused on these these tentpole projects that their the resources right. don't get spread around in ways I think that are as uh, sort of open to uh, mm-hmm. to innovation. It's well, almost like capitalism is bad for art. Hmm. Almost, yeah. yeah I- do, do you think then like uh, that streaming probably has made things worse or better then? Because I feel like that, that the, the, the ticket sales and streaming go hand in hand in terms of like what's going on. Like, yes, movie tickets were going down before, but streaming really accelerated that process. Yeah, I mean, it has absolutely cut off a, a significant revenue stream uh, when it comes to uh, sort of, sort of uh, films and it's hitting, uh, I mean, independent theaters worse um, we also saw, like, uh, I don't know uh, if you're familiar with, with the uh, the Paramount decision that sort of broke up the uh, the monopolies that the, the studios this. had from, uh, this was a, a Supreme Court case in 1948 that broke up the uh, the monopolies of the big studios because they used to own, uh, like, the theaters and things so that they would only show their own movies. Right. Um, that uh, So the the, law, uh, the, the ruling uh, sort of made them sell off uh, their, their theaters, which gave independent films a chance um, to, uh, to, to be seen. Um, but that was... Reversed in 2020 uh, at the behest of uh, the right. Trump uh, Trump's uh, Department of Justice, um, so that's no longer the case. Uh, you're gonna, we're going to start to see, I think Amazon branded theaters playing Amazon branded th- films, um, and that's uh, mm. now legal, but was that's not so two dark. years ago. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, wasn't like I think John Roberts is like argument like, well, I mean, like we're we're get overturning this because that won't happen again. <laughs> No, it's like, the, it, like it, the Civil Rights Act, right? That it's, uh, it's uh, we don't need yeah, this anymore. We don't need it anymore. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, we solve racism. It's fine. Wow. So, no, I think, I think if I remember correctly, that, that was literally, like, literally the argument. It's like, well, I mean, we saw how that played out. And I mean, we just know, look, it just won't happen again, which is like either hopelessly naive or just so deeply cynical. Yeah, just not recognizing that the reason that it, ha- it has stopped happening is because the law was there to prevent it from happening. Right, right. Yeah, so um, this Nosferatu, even though, as we talked about before, wasn't about Dracula, but really was about Dracula, but also was about vampires, but let's stick to Dracula. Of the Dracula movies we, we, we've we collectively have seen, you know, we all haven't seen the same movies, but... what All of them. I've seen all of them. Hell yeah. Um, where Where do we think that this depiction, like in your opinion, stands in those kind of like depictions, like, and talk about like how to, how it compares for everybody. Hmm. It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the, it's like the original, right? But how do we think, is it, does it, does it, does it capture the essence? Well, this is like, are there better ones? What do we think? Honestly, I think my favorite Dracula movie is probably the one that Werner Herzog made very much based on this one as soon as the book by Bram Stoker went into the public domain, he was waiting and it finally happened in like 1973. He's like, boom, I'm doing it. And it was basically another version of the OG Drac of the OG Nosferatu, which obviously was heavily based on the book. Very German in the same way. Uh, it's got those grand shots of nature. I think it's got some Wagner playing. It's just like an intensification. Also very anti-Semitic, very German. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was an, an, an intensification 
of uh, everything that this film was trying to do using some more modern technology. And I think it was really good. Oh, and who played Dracula in it? Was it Klaus Kinski? Yep. Kinski. Yeah. Yeah. He was really good and really creepy as Dracula. I mean, I also enjoyed like the flashy 90s Dracula with fucking Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. The Coppola one. Yeah, yeah, the Coppola one. It was just like Gary Oldman as Dracula. That one's very, awesome. Yeah, like a very more is more scenario. I mean, Keanu kind of takes you out of the fantasy <laughs> that you're in the olden days because he's just like, "Whoa, dude, it's devil women sucking my dick." No, but, it, uh, it was so it's so it's so good. It's like I yeah. I love I love that movie personally. Like, I know it's not 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 the best. It could be given like, you know, one Keanu Reeves and also it's a bit camp, you know, but I kind of like camp, but also, uh, I don't know. I, I think that one's awesome. I mean, that's my answer. Like Gary Oldman's Dracula. Yeah. yeah you well, like that one? Well, because I think, uh, well, one, I'm a big Gary Oldman fan. I think he's in truly one of the great all time like actors, but also, you know, God, I'm a sucker for just a really impressively done evil laugh that Gary Oldman did yeah. in that one. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, that one is fun, but I would say the the Herzog one is my favorite. Okay. How about you, Travis? Um, I mean, I feel like I'm obliged to stand up for the uh, the, the OG here, um, but it's, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I love this one. I feel like it gets the, um, the, the sort of ancientness and like darkness and despair right. of what a vampire would be like, right? That it's, uh, he's, thousands of years old and he, he fucking looks like right. it. Right. Um, and I mean the Herzog one gets that, uh, gets that uh, right as well. Um, it's a funny anecdote. I've heard, uh, Herzog, uh, I actually played this clip on the, on the podcast where, um, when Herzog set about to make his, uh, his Nosferatu, uh, the Murnau foundation who has the, the rights to uh, Murnau's film, um, tried to sue him in order for copyright oh infringement God. when Herzog was wow. like, Hey, you, how history you, rhymes. You, you guys told Dracula. It's uh, you, you don't have a, a leg to stand on here. Um, I just, I'd also like to plug, uh, have you guys seen shadow of the vampire from 2000? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that I, don't think I, I saw it a long time ago, but I'll watch it again. Oh, it's totally worth watching. Um, but it's about the, uh, the production of Nosferatu, um, and the conceit is that um, the uh, the vampire is being played by an, an actual real vampire who's uh, who's William, Willem Dafoe uh, in, in the film. Um, Murnau is played by uh, by John Malkovich. And it's uh, I, it's it's super funny. It's super. Um, there are tons of sort of Weimar era film in jokes in there, which are um, fun if you're a, a nerd like me and are into that stuff. And so that's uh, that's a lot of fun. But I uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll stick up for for 1922's Nosferatu. Nice. Nice. I I will say one thing, (laughs) one scene I really enjoyed that I don't think is in the other ones, but I could be wrong is when he eats every single person on the ship. Right. Which is like, all right, I could see him eating some of the people, but like the fucking captain. Oh, he went like, that's a bold move. No, you think he'd look a little bloated or something. That's a, it's a feast. Well, also, like, just you think you can drive the boat yourself, Dracula? And apparently the answer is yes, because I mean, he arrives at his destination. I mean, kind of what Travis said. If he's been around for a couple thousand years, I'm sure he's picked up some skills. Yeah. Um, but, but, like, to do a, to, to drive a boat by yourself, though, like, don't you need the crew and shit? I guess he's just, uh, 
you know, he's got powers beyond our comprehension. I was thinking maybe there's some telekinesis going on or something where he's able to steer with his mind. Mm. That would, that would make sense. I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm very compelled by your answer, Travis, because like it, I think, I think you do bring up a really good point about how this movie does capture the ancientness of the character or if like, if it is supposed to be this undying character, like of a vampire that lives forever, then, you know, there, there is this kind of like almost alien quality to it that should be more captured in it. Now, I personally, I love vampires. I think they're, they're, they should be brought back, I feel like. And I think they are coming back in, in the uh, general pop culture. I think there was like a really big zombie moment. But frankly, I I've, I think zombies are, like unless it's are kind of played out a bit right now, whereas vampires, especially now with respect to, uh, uh, in terms of a criticism of our economic system, of capitalism, kind of really does capture a certain kind of a... Uh, because you know, vampires almost like really consistently, like so consistent, vampires are, are portrayed as rich people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a few working class vampire movies though that I have done on the pod with Leslie, including The Lost Boys. That's a really good one. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, most of them are well, in some movies, they're capitalists, like in the Blade movies. The vampires are fucking capitalist um, real estate guys. That's so cool. Uh, it's like the, like, it's like the worst kind of capitalist to real estate too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I guess we can separate it from the tropes a little more than we used to now that um, right. we live in the modern era. I don't know. Um, but then, like a lot of vampires are just sort of this like decrepit feudal aristocracy. You know, this they live in a castle. They have this like feudal horde of mm-hmm. jewels. They don't like they don't have to go to work. Have you ever seen a vampire with a job? No. They just live on their feudal wealth horde. And uh I I like that because uh you know, it could be seen as a metaphor for like the the transition of the world system from what? feudalism through the the bourgeois times and, you know, maybe someday to communism, you know? Well, I would say, you know, vampires, even vampires are, are being proletarianized. If, if that, uh, that, uh, FX show that's based on the mockumentary movie, what's uh, it called? What we like, do in uh, the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's that one character is like an energy vampire. Like he has like a oh, yeah. job as an accountant. It's like, even they are being proletarianized. It's true. I mean, they live a bunch of them to a house. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're no roommates. longer live. They no longer live in just one home. They they are vampires now too. Like but a, you kind of get the sense that they have funding. Aside, but no, you know, you know what? Because there's the whole plot line where they open the vampire nightclub because they need to make money to repair their shitty house. It's yeah. falling apart. So you're totally right about that. I mean, I think for Colin Robinson, work provides two different things right because on the one hand he makes money and on the other hand that's like his hunting ground because he's an energy vampire and he just like bores people and sucks their energy and that's how he feeds good show highly recommend it gonna be one of those vampires for halloween actually very oh yeah 
Yeah, no, and you, and you have the uh, the bored hipster vampires and uh, um, what's what's the Jim Jarmusch movie? Um, Only lovers left alive. Oh yeah. Where yeah, I, I guess he's got a job. He's putting out his his music, right? Um, the, uh... That's not a job. <laughs> Come on. I, my favorite part of that movie is the fact that Jim Jarmusch did all the music with his band Squirrel, and that the, in the store in the plot this this vampire was supposed to be like this great composer who like wrote Mozart's music for him and like wrote all this great music that we still know today and didn't take any credit. And the music he's making now is squirrel. <laughs> like, tell, kind of t- says, tells you something about Jim Jarmusch. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, also, you know, as 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 Marxist, I also feel like an obligation to kind of like really think it's like you know, vampires are really at the heart of Marx's critique of capital too. You know, it's like really literally in Capital, he describes uh, capital as like a uh, as like a vampire relation towards people of like sucking the blood of labor. Yeah, well, Marx was writing at the time that the Gothic novel was really uh, in vogue. So he was like, much yeah. like we do when yeah, we talk use about pop dating culture yourself. references. Talk about dating yourself, Marx. <laughs> well, no, like we use pop culture references all the time when we're trying to like make this material engaging for people. Uh, luckily, the vampire has not gone away and people still know what he's talking about there. We actually did an episode with the lit crit guy uh, of the Antifada a while back where we kind of go into depth about uh, the Gothic and Marx. There's a, what, this, this is a specter haunting Europe, right? You've got some, some ghost stories mm-hmm. uh, in there. Yeah. Well, it's great because ca- it, it is such a good metaphor for capitalism and how it functions. And uh, he uses some very evocative language. I think so. I've heard other people describe capital as an alien Right, because it like gets up inside of all of us. It's like invasion of the body snatchers, and uh, you know we're all a part of this system, whether we want to be or not. It's making us do things, making us well. You know, some of us more than others. Um, <laughs> I was just joking earlier today that I'm like exhausted because I think my body is rejecting wage labor. <laughs> it's been a minute before I've since I've done any, but uh, made some money at the club last night. But anyway, yeah, fucking vampires. Yeah, they're inside I, all of us. You mentioned gothic, but also like I think just generally in terms of where we are, it's culturally, you know, speaking now in 2022, people will be the judge if this was a right reading or not. But point is, I think that we are kind of due for or are on the precipice of like a gothic revival. Like, I feel like there is something like that. That that those kind of themes that speak of the 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 real moment of our time. I mean, especially like you got, you got COVID, which is like plague. You got like war happening. You have uh, uh, a lot of distress in terms of economically and inflation, but also just this keen understanding of like this, like really far distant, but owns everything ruling class. It's feel true. Like, feel like Sounds very Weimar. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for the Gothic revival. You know, it's not always easy being a goth and a Jew and a communist at the same time. I feel like I yeah, really got struggle, Jamie. Really got to be careful what uh, culture I consume because there unfortunately is a very like fascist strain 
in gothic culture or like, for whatever reason Wait, some really? of these people have a lot of these people have picked it up and decided that they like it but uh anytime i listen you know? to a new black metal band i have to like google like name of band nazi oh, and make man. sure it's uh <laughs> there's not an affiliation Good. there and that's why you're an ally travis oh yeah that's allyship right there well Unless anyone has any final thoughts, I think this is a great place to end this episode, but not the conversation. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again really soon, either on or off the air. Thank you so much for coming, Travis. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. And uh, we'll be sure to put a link to your podcast in the episode description when this runs. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Do the haunting. I don't know. I'm trying to make it spooky. <laughs> you know the song? Do the reading or I will suck your blood. <laughs> Have you heard the Rob Zombie song, Teenage Nosferatu Pussy? No. No. It's, it's worth checking out. If you need some music to, uh, to play it off by, I would, uh, I would recommend okay. the chorus for that one. Oh, yeah. I will. I will check it out.